seven top 10 hits, eight Grammy Awards, eight American Music Awards, 37 consecutive weeks at number one, countless millions of copies sold, and ultimately an entry in the Guinness Book of World Records. Thriller is so often spoken about as Michael Jackson's greatest commercial success, the biggest selling album in music history, and the holder of countless other industry records. Many of these unparalleled accolades were by design, goals that Jackson set for himself and achieved. And while these commercial achievements are undoubtedly a proud part of Jackson's legacy and an important driving force behind the creation of Thriller, this documentary won't focus on any of them. Jackson once expressed that when studying the artists he admired, their creative process was what he wanted to know about. Using his love of Michelangelo as an example, Jackson explains. I'm a great fan of art. I love Michelangelo. If I had a chance to talk to him or read about him, I would want to know about what inspired him, the anatomy of his craftsmanship. That's what's important to me. And so, in keeping with what was important to Jackson, this documentary will focus exclusively on what inspired him and the anatomy of his craftsmanship, detailing the creative process that Jackson, together with his team of producers, writers and musicians went through to create the nine songs that formed the Thriller album itself. This is The Genesis of Thriller. so much work. A lot of people, they're used to um, just seeing the outcome of work. They never see the side of the work you go through to produce the outcome. The Thriller album was recorded at Westlake Audio in West Hollywood between April and November 1982. Three years earlier, Jackson had released an album called Off The Wall. The album, produced by Quincy Jones, had four hit singles, a record at the time, and became the biggest selling album ever by a black solo artist. But when it was nominated for only two Grammy Awards, one of which it did win, Jackson felt that their work had not been fully recognised. And so, when it came time to record their next album, Jackson wanted to create something that couldn't be ignored, expressing his desire for Thriller to become the biggest selling album of all time. Some of his collaborators recall that they would laugh at Jackson for having what they believed to be unrealistic goals. But like Jackson, producer Quincy Jones also had a grand vision for Thriller. Time, the music industry was in a major slump. People simply weren't buying albums the way they had in the past. And so, during a pre-production meeting with Jackson, songwriter Rod Temperton, and engineer Bruce Swedean, Jones gave them a mandate. Swedean recalls. He said, we have got to make music that makes people want to go into the record stores and buy it. Jones proclaimed that they would achieve this by crafting an album with a sonic quality better than anything else on the market. 
Jackson and Jones share the same philosophy about making albums. They don't believe in B-sides or album songs. Jackson would often ask why there couldn't be a pop album where every single song was a hit. I would always say to myself, why can't every one be like a hit song? Why can't every song be so great that people would want to buy it and release it as a single? You know, everyone could be a single. So I always tried to strive for that, and that was my purpose for the next album. That was the whole idea. Producer Quincy Jones discusses how making a great album starts with songs. Everything starts with songs. We got killer, killer, killer songs. We went to 800 songs to do Thriller, to get nine songs. The 800 songs that were considered for the Thriller album came from a variety of sources. Producer Quincy Jones had put the call out to his favourite songwriters in the industry, asking them to submit songs that they thought might be good for Jackson. Jackson, a talented songwriter in his own right, was also writing songs for the album. Jones says Jackson was writing songs like a machine at the time. Jackson recalls that he had written up to 60 songs during the Thriller sessions. When I write songs for an album, I'll write 50 to 60 songs for just one album, a lot of songs, just for nine songs, you know, and I'll pick from those. Jackson explains his process of writing the songs and presenting them to producer Quincy Jones. I'd write the song, do a demo, and play it for him. And most likely he'd love it, and we would record it. A demo is a rough version of a song to demonstrate the idea, like a musical sketch. When an idea would come to Jackson, he would capture the idea by singing each part into a tape recorder. This will be a recurring theme when detailing Jackson's creative process during the Thriller sessions. Once the idea was down on tape, Jackson would record a demo in his home studio, often with some of his siblings playing instruments or singing background vocals. During the years leading up to the Thriller sessions, Jackson also worked in his home studio with a variety of musicians who helped to bring a number of his ideas to life. But despite the fact that he would write up to 60 songs per album, Jackson didn't present them all. He was highly selective, only presenting the songs that he felt were strong enough. The first song that Jackson presented during the Thriller sessions was one that he'd been working on since the previous album. What you're hearing now is Jackson's original home demo for Wannabe Startin' Something. Talk 
Despite the fact that he really liked the demo, Jackson hadn't been able to bring himself to present it to producer Quincy Jones three years earlier when recording the Off The Wall album. However, when it came time to start working on the Thriller album, Jackson finally built up the courage to play it for him. When he heard it, Jones loved the demo, but noticed that part of the track was inspired by another song, released 10 years earlier. Jones told Jackson that the African chant at the end had originated from the Grammy-nominated track Soul Makosa, now playing, written by Cameroonian artist Manu Dibango. Jackson told Jones that he knew where it came from and that he had to have it. Jackson changed the phrasing and melody of the original chant, instead singing it to the tune of Dibango's saxophone solo. Take a listen. The chants are a play on the word Makosa, which is the style of African music Dibango was famous for. Makosa also means I dance in Dibango's native language, Duala. Jackson discusses the influence that Africa and African music had on him. The rhythms of Africa, which are the roots of rhythm, that's my favorite music. I think that's the favorite music of the world because all music is derived from that. I mean, Africa is music. It is the origin. You know, it, it, it is the dawn of existence. And so that's in everything that influenced myself. Musician Greg Fillingaines discusses the African nature of Jackson's approach to rhythm. Michael's approach to rhythm is very African. He's got this deep tribal thing in him, you know, this incredible amount of soul, you know, and, and uh, it's very powerful. It seems like he only unleashes it when it's time to work on a record or something, but it's just so deeply instilled in him, you know, and I think he tends to base a lot of concepts starting from rhythms that, that he comes up with. <laughs> He can emulate different uh, percussive sounds, you know. And uh, sounds really cool. And a lot of times they're they're used as part of the foundation of uh, the song. So he's just heavily uh, uh, percussion oriented. Focused on their vision of crafting an album that would inspire people to return to the record stores, Jackson and producer Quincy Jones assembled an all-star cast of the industry's best session musicians. The musicians would play their parts at Westlake Audio, with each sound meticulously recorded and mixed by engineer Bruce Swedean.
Jerry Hay, who did string and horn arrangements on several tracks recorded during the Thriller sessions, reveals the tips that he learned from working with producer Quincy Jones. The things that I learned from Quincy were leave a space for the vocal, don't play a note that the vocal has, and I always try to put a horn signature phrase after the chorus of a tune so that when you think of the tune, then you think of the horn part. horn arrangement is the only significant change that was made to want to be starting something during the Westlake recording sessions. Everything else, including the guitar solo by David Williams, is recreated exactly as Jackson composed it in his original demo. The guitar riff in there was the hardest thing in the world to play. I mean, we worked on that like two days to just to get that part. Williams recalls how Jackson demanded he play the solo again and again until it was exactly the way he wanted it. And, you know, Michael would go, no, you didn't do it that way. I said, yes, I did. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. You know, we got into it. <laughs> but Williams was up for the challenge, something that Jackson, a perfectionist, appreciated. And you do your best. See, when I go in the studio, I play like it's going to be the last gig I'm ever going to do in my life. And he appreciates that. kind of just come they create themselves i'm just the source through which they come and it's a beautiful thing it's very spiritual it's like standing under a tree and letting a leaf fall and trying to catch it it's that beautiful and um what i do is it comes into my head i could be walking along on a road or i could be sitting on a bench at disneyland or something eating peanuts and there it is it's in my head or i could be in the shower or i can wake up and there the song is. It's right in, in my head. The entire composition, you know, that's how it happens. Before recording a demo in the studio with an engineer and musicians, Jackson would often create what he called work tapes. As an idea was coming to him, Jackson would dictate the idea into a tape recorder to capture it. And I put the sounds down orally with my mouth, making sounds of how I want the bass or the strings or the drums or each part to go the way I hear it, because the key is to get exactly what you're hearing in your head on that tape. For the Thriller album, producer Quincy Jones wanted to do a duet between Jackson and former Beatle Paul McCartney. Coincidentally, a few months before Jones raised the idea with him, Jackson had already travelled to England to write with McCartney, 
Michael originally rang me, said, do you want to make some hits? And I said, yeah, sure I do, you know. So he came over, we agreed to meet here, and uh, we just sat around, I had a guitar and a piano, and we just said, all right, so what should we do? So we just started, and it came very easily, because I was quite excited to write with him, he was quite excited yeah. to write with me, so we were popping off each other, and, um, and I just wrote the lyrics down, you know, and said, yeah. okay, that's it. Jackson and McCartney's initial writing session resulted in rough drafts for two songs, The Man and Say Say Say, which would later be finished with Beatles producer George Martin and released on McCartney's album, Pipes of Peace. Jackson recalls that for the potential thriller album collaboration with McCartney, producer Quincy Jones entrusted him with the sole songwriting duties. Quincy said to me, write a song that you and Paul McCartney can sing together. So, I guess I went to sleep and... When I woke up the next day, there it was, and I ran to the tape recorder, and I started to put down what I heard in my head. Let's take a listen to Jackson's original 1981 work tape for the song, which ultimately became The Girl Is Mine. When the song first kicks off, I can hear some horns in the front. For instance, this is how the music goes. In the front. Yes, that's me writing the parts to the girl is mine. Certain words come into your head at a certain time that are fitting for the melody. Um, certain words come with the melody at the same time that it's created. I can tell the way she had but she knows that they fine. She talks to me that's in her bed And I know she wants to buy The girl is mine After creating the melody I'm now creating the different sounds That I want to go with the melody What each instrument should do Punch line, that piano feel that goes That's harmony with that voice harmony. What I'm hearing in my head is some type of counterline to build the chorus because in songwriting you should go from the verse to the chorus and when the chorus comes it should be like a flower blossoming in your face. So to build that and to make that happen you have to add in other sounds to make it refreshing and wonderful. While trying to embellish the chorus with those additional sounds, right in the middle of his work tape, Jackson stops to remind himself to stay true to his songwriting philosophy. And don't write the song. Don't write anything. Let the song create itself. Let the strings tell you what to do, where they should come. Let the piano tell you what chords to hit, what are the feels. Let the bass tell you what it should be doing. Everything. Let it create itself. Let it form. Let it do what it wants to do. Don't force upon the song. Let the song force upon you. 
Jackson explains what he means when he says don't write the song. I try not to invent. I try to discover what's there. And I'm discovering where the song wants to go. And that's what I'm saying. Let it create itself. Because it's trying to create itself. With the melody and sounds for the verses and chorus taking shape, Jackson moved on to the bridge. What a bridge is, is to take you from A to B. It is to take you from the verse to another part. It is escapism. From hearing the same mundane, trivial, ordinary thing that you've been hearing all the time. Because the ear gets tired of hearing the same sounds. So what a bridge does, it takes you away from all of that. Then when it finally comes back to what you were doing before, it's stronger. It's much stronger. Here's another bridge part. Take and go with me. Take her anywhere. Don't. I will show you pity. If the reading can. She can go with me. Out, out of the town. It's a slight change. She, she can go with me. Out, out, out. Yeah, that's it. She can go with me. Down, out of town. Out of town. She can feel with another friend doing. I hope to say hello to her. But she knows that may fine. And she talks to me that's in her bed. And I know she wants to buy. The girl is mine. The girl is mine. With his work tape now complete. Jackson headed to Alan Zent's recording studio in Hollywood to create a proper demo of the song. Jackson said that he wanted to produce a really nice sounding tape to present to Paul McCartney, including a full string arrangement, and knew that Alan Zent's was the perfect studio for the job. This was the result. I met her from the start I'm so proud I am the only one Who is special in her heart The girl is mine With the demo down on tape, Jackson and producer Quincy Jones travelled to McCartney's ranch in Tucson, Arizona to present the track to the former Beatle. When he first heard the track, McCartney questioned Jackson about some of the lyrics, believing that they were too shallow. But when Jackson explained that the rhythm and the feel was more important to this particular song than depth and complexity, McCartney conceded that Jackson was right. From there, Jackson and McCartney spent a few days rehearsing the song. Producer Quincy Jones recalls, Paul was in Tucson, and we had to go down there and work with him for two or three days, which was fun, and rehearsing um, the song and finding things, you know, just finding things that, that, that make them tailor-made for them, you know, them fighting with the same girl. During the rehearsals, Jones felt that something was missing. Jackson recalls that one morning, Jones called him and suggested that they include a rap at the end of the song. Jackson loved the idea, and the rap was added when McCartney joined Jackson at Westlake Studios to record the duet. Girl, 
Matt Forger, an engineer on the Thriller project, recalls that during those Westlake recording sessions, Jackson took command, laying out his vision for the song. When Michael knew, no, this is the way the song should be at that point, uh, whether it was a musician, uh, a Paul, or anyone else in the room, uh, he would explain it in detail and he would say to Paul, no, this is, this is the part where you sing this line and, and you should be here or there. If I sat here and played some chords, whatever, and say, I'm going to write the best song ever written, nothing happens. Something in the heavens has to say, look, this is the time that this is going to be laid on you, and this is when I want you to have it. Now, I remember when I, when I wrote Billie Jean, all I said to myself beforehand, I want to write a song with a great bass hook, you know, and, um, and I just let it go, really. And then several days later, you know, the entire foundation of what would become Billie Jean suddenly came to Jackson all at once while he was out driving his car. And I loved it, so I drove fast home and I got on the microphone and put things down. The same way he did when writing The Girl Is Mine, Jackson recorded all the sounds he was hearing in his head using a technique commonly referred to as beatboxing. <laughs> And on top of that, I hear the chords, and the lyrics, the strings, the chords, everything comes at that moment, like a gift that is put right into your head. And that's how I hear it. Then I went into the studio, got the magicians over, and gave them all their parts. And that's how uh, that was created. With his idea down on tape, Jackson met musician Bill Wolfer at his home studio. Jackson gave Wolfer the job of bringing his vision to life in the form of a rough demo. And I remember hearing that in a demo form at Michael's house, and Quincy and I and Rod Temperton were there checking out uh, possibilities for the new album. And uh, I just remember thinking, man, that is the funkiest thing I've ever heard. More kicking stuff in the phones, I need it. What you're hearing now is Jackson's original home demo of Billie Jean. It was really raw, you know, and uh, I, I do like Michael's demos because they have, they have this, this really raw edge to them. It's very uh, uh, exciting. 
Musician Greg Fillengaines recalls that while Billie Jean was the funkiest thing he'd ever heard, with a totally new and unique sound, certain elements of the track had been inspired by other songs of the same time period. There was nothing like that before, there was nothing like that. Except for a song called State of Independence and it was written by John Anderson from Yes. The song State of Independence was first released as part of the 1981 album Friends of Mr. Cairo by the duo John and Vangelis. Part of that duo, John Anderson, recalls how Quincy Jones told him that he and Jackson would listen to that album for inspiration prior to recording the Thriller album. Quincy said to me, you know, me and Michael, we were starting Thriller, we would listen to your album, Friends of Mr. Cairo. Jones was so impressed by the tracks on the album that he recorded a cover of State of Independence with the Queen of Disco, Donna Summer. In a full circle moment, having already recorded his demo of Billie Jean, Jones asked Jackson to sing background vocals on the cover, together with an all-star cast. Musician Greg Fillengaines, who worked on both the summer version of State of Independence and Billie Jean, discusses the similarities between the bass lines of both songs. It had a similar bass part, but it was faster. And um, I think Possibly Michael might have been influenced by that because uh, if you slow it down and put it in another key, you'll get. The song's original writer, John Anderson, says that when he heard Billie Jean, he thought that the funky new bass line that Jackson had written was wonderful. Another influence on Jackson was the song I Can't Go For That. No Can Do by American pop rock group Hall and Oates. Lead singer of the group, Daryl Hall, recalls Jackson openly admitted to him that the groove of their song had indeed inspired Billie Jean. And Michael came up to me and he goes, hey man, I hope you don't mind if I stole No Can Do. What do you mean you stole No Can Do? He says, nah man, I used it for Billie Jean. That was in his head because he, he, it, was, it inspired him. So yeah. he said that to me. I thought that was pretty cool that he said that. But that just goes to show you though, an artist can take something that even they may think is a ripoff or whatever you want to call it, but right. it's not at all. From the moment he conceived it, Jackson was consumed by Billie Jean. Jackson recorded several demos of the song, allowing it to evolve naturally over time as he searched for the right sounds and the right lyrics. Artists seem to get in the way of the music. Get out of the way of the music. You know, don't write the music. Let the music write itself. Jackson describes how producer Quincy Jones embraced his unique creative philosophy of staying out of the way of the music. Working with Quincy is just wonderful because he lets you experiment and do your thing and he's genius enough to stay out of the way of the music. And if there's an element to be added, he'll add it. And he hears these little things, like for instance in Billie Jean, I had written a whole composition I brought. But then from listening, he'll add a, a nice riff. But the two didn't always agree. Jones recalls how he confronted Jackson about the length of the intro on Billie Jean. He had an intro, you could shave on an intro so long. And so I said, it's too long, you know, we've we got to get to the melody quicker. He said, but that's the jelly. That's what makes me want to dance. Now, when Michael Jackson tells you that's what makes me want to dance, the rest of us have to shut up. 
And so Jackson got his way, and Billie Jean was allowed to write itself. When I said Billie Jean is not my lover, I didn't think about it. It just came. It all dropped in my lap at once. Studio engineer Bruce Wadian remembers Jackson's perfectionism during the mixing process on Billie Jean. So we're mixing Billie Jean and he would say, Bruce, that's perfect, but let's try one more. And this is like mix 80. So I say, no problem. So we did it. And then finally we got up to mix 91 and Quincy came in the control room and said, what are you guys doing in here all this, this time? And so we told him, Quincy, we're mixing Billy Dean, and we got a fabulous mix. And Quincy Jones cuts right to the chase, and he says, let me hear this POS you think you're making so perfect. So we played it for him. Got real quiet in the control room. Quincy said to me and Michael, he said, okay guys, let's listen to mix two. So we played mix two, it blew it all away. The live drums you're hearing, performed by Ndugu Chancellor, replaced the drum machine on Jackson's demo. Engineer Bruce Swedean used a custom-made drum cover to record the drums, resulting in an instantly recognisable sound, which Swedean describes as sonic personality. Right from the beginning, the most important part of Billie Jean to Jackson was the bass line. Jackson told bass player Lewis Johnson to bring all of his guitars to the studio so they could find the exact sound that Jackson was looking for. Johnson recalls that Jackson was very specific about how he wanted the bass to sound, again demonstrating the notes by singing them to him. Johnson recalls that he tried three or four of his basses before he and Jackson settled on the Yamaha. And this was the result.
During the early Thriller sessions, Jackson was mostly working on his own songs in private with a small team at his Havenhurst home studio. Jackson explained that before he gave those songs, like Billie Jean, to producer Quincy Jones, he wanted to hear the material that had come in from other writers. Jones had the monumental task of going through the hundreds of tapes that had been submitted by those writers. Jones ultimately selected a handful of songs, which he and Jackson hit the studio to record vocals for. One of those songs was written by Glenn Ballard, who was working for Quincy Jones as a staff writer at the time. I had written a song, and it was called Nightline. Call me on the nightline. Waking me up. And it was just like a little riff. It was like a little dance song. It was kind of a fun, innocent track. Quincy liked it, Michael liked it. So we went in and demoed the song. I'm singing it with Michael. And I thought, oh my God, yeah. I might make it on this record. Some of the other tracks that Jackson recorded vocals for included She's Trouble, and Got the Hots. Meanwhile, British songwriter Rod Temperton had also been busy at work writing songs for Jackson's consideration. Temperton had joined Jackson's team three years earlier, writing several songs for his Off The Wall album, including the chart-topping hit, Rock With You. Musician Greg Fillingaines recalls how producer Quincy Jones loved the songs that Temperton had written for a British band called Heatwave and recruited him to write for Jackson. Quincy plucked him out and brought him into the fold and said, you're going to write for Michael because the brilliance of Quincy, understanding talent and understanding the potential for expanding that talent. And he realized that, uh, or he felt that Brad would be a great addition and a key element in the new version of Michael. Phil and Gaines, who was also part of Jackson's team, describes Temperton's songwriting process. This guy was a consummate songwriter, and he brought new depth and meaning to the term doing your homework. This guy, in the creation of one song, would come up with 200 titles, just freaking titles, 200 of them, just so he can pare down and finally nail one to start a concept with. That's just a song title. He hadn't written a note yet. I'm just going to just come up with options for song titles. 
From hundreds of potential titles, Temperton came up with 35 rough ideas, which he called Polaroids. Temperton met with Quincy Jones to discuss the Polaroids, and Jones picked his five favourites, which Temperton then recorded demos for. Jackson recalls the day that Temperton and Jones presented those demos to him at his Havenhurst home studio. They came with a keyboard, and in the keyboard it's his performances of the different sounds. He can MIDI those sounds and put them up on tape on the 24 track and uh, put them on tape. And it was a way of testing to see if I liked the songs or not with my voice, trying different harmonies. Jackson recorded vocals for three of the five demos that Temperton presented that day, including this one. Greg Fillingaines discusses the level of detail that went into Temperton's demos. Everything is of painstaking detail, and all the little layers and details of parts, he came up with all of them, and that was for every song. After Jackson recorded the demo, Quincy Jones took Baby Be Mine to the Westlake studio, where the best session musicians in the industry played all of Temperton's original musical parts. Jones increased the tempo ever so slightly, and Jackson recorded a fresh new vocal, transforming the track from this... ...to this. Gaines, who plays keyboards and synthesizers on Baby Be Mine, says that when the musicians recorded their parts at Westlake Audio, nothing was left to the imagination. That's how perfectly crafted the musical arrangements were on Temperton's demos. It's not like we were improvising. Every part came from him and we were duplicating. Like all the little parts with all the multi-layers of sounds and parts, that all came from him. The second track written by Temperton and recorded by Jackson during these sessions was originally called Slapstick.
Jackson loved the song, but Temperton and producer Quincy Jones felt that it wasn't as strong as other songs being considered for the album. Leaving no stone unturned, Temperton gave the song a new title and wrote all new lyrics, which Jackson also recorded. The new version, called Hot Street, retained the same arrangement and melody as the original slapstick demo, and Jackson was thrilled with the result. The third of Temperton's three demos recorded by Jackson during those initial sessions was Thriller. But like Hot Street, Thriller didn't start out as Thriller. We did Thriller, which was called Give Me Some Starlight. Starlight, starlight sun. That's how it went. Originally written under the title Starlight, the demo, now playing, was a feel-good anthem which explored the idea of sharing a moment of love in order to rise above the negativity in the world. The track had an undeniably killer bass line, reminiscent of the Rick James hit Give It To Me Baby, and a highly danceable groove. But thematically, the song didn't have the same edge that tracks like Wanna Be Startin' Something and Billie Jean had. Producer Quincy Jones felt that Starlight, which was also the working title for the album, needed a new direction. And so, Temperton went back to the drawing board, writing hundreds of new titles. And then I came up with the title Midnight Man. The title Midnight Man was a step in the right direction, 
but still not quite what Quincy Jones was looking for. Temperton recalls that one morning he woke up and everything fell into place. The title would be Thriller. He could visualise it at the top of the Billboard charts. He could see the merchandise. So Temperton took the new title to Jones and Jackson and asked them how they felt about it. She did ask me which would I like better, to be a song about let the sun shine in type of thing or Thriller. And I thought kids would enjoy something more fun like Thriller. So we went with the Thriller idea. Musically, it was the same, but we changed the lyrics and the title, and we added other sounds and things like that. With its dark new horror theme, one of the things that Jackson's team wanted to add to Thriller was the sound of a wolf howling. Engineer Bruce Swedean recalls how he initially tried to get his dog, Max, to perform the howls. At the time we were working on Thriller, I had a large dog. His name was Max. He was a great Dan. I took Max with me to the studio. We bribed Max with hamburgers. We were trying to get him to howl. I wanted Max's voice to be the wolf howls on Thriller. He didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to be on Thriller. With Max refusing to help, Jackson's team was left with only one option. In the end, we had to have Michael do the wolf howl. Jackson's performance of the Wolf Howls were used as part of a 24-track sonic tapestry that forms the horror-themed intro to Thriller. Let's take a listen. When I wrote Thriller, I'd always envisioned this kind of talking section at the end and um, didn't really know what we were going to do with it. But one thing I'd thought about was to have somebody, a famous voice in the horror genre, to do this vocal. Quincy's wife knew Vincent Price. Vincent Price was an American actor best known for his performances in horror films. Man, if you're dealing with a horror film, who is better than Vincent Price? I mean, please, you know, 
And so it was Quincy said to me, how about if we got Vincent Price? And I said, well, that'd be amazing if we could get him. So he spoke to his wife and, and they got it together and Vincent said he would love to do it. So it was all set up that he would come in and do it. And the idea was going to be that he would just talk some horror talk, the type of lines he would deliver in some of his famous roles, right up until the night before the session. The night before the recording session, Jones called Temperton and asked him to write something for Price to read. Jones wasn't sure whether Price had ever recorded for a musical project and wanted to be as prepared as possible. In fact, Price had recorded a spoken intro for Alice Cooper's 1975 song, The Black Widow. Regardless, Temperton agreed to prepare something for Price to read. So I said, okay, no problem. I'll get up tomorrow morning and uh, write it before we come to the studio. Temperton's plans to write the piece the next morning were thrown into disarray when his publisher arrived at his hotel for a 9am meeting that the songwriter had completely forgotten about. The meeting lasted three hours, finishing at noon. At that time, Temperton received a phone call from Quincy Jones, asking how the writing session was going. It's Quincy says, how are you doing? Have you, have you got something? And I said, don't worry about it, I'll have something. Uh, I'm just finishing it off. <laughs> And so I hung up and got a piece of paper and frantically started to write some stuff. And I'd written all the lyrics for the song and, and the, the theme of the whole thing was so strong anyway that it was quite easy to visualise all these kind of lines that Vincent would say. And so I started writing and I wrote one verse there while I was waiting for the taxi and then I got in the taxi and while I'm going to the studio I, I wrote two more whole verses. So I wrote three uh, verses of poetry or rap and we only needed two in the end anyway. And just one of those lucky times that it just flowed out of me. And as I arrived at the studio, I saw a car pull up and out steps Vincent Price. And the taxi pulled around the back of the studio and I dived out of the cab, raced in the back door, said to the secretary, photocopy this quick. And uh, they put it on the music stand and he walked in and sat down in his chair and off we went. Hi, this is Michael Jackson. And this is Vincent Price inviting you to
As the end of 1982 approached, Jackson and his production team had to make some decisions about which songs were going to make the album. Songwriter Rod Temperton and engineer Matt Forger discussed the process. When we first went in the studio to make the real album, uh, we, I believe, did nine cuts as the tracks and did some vocals on them. You're testing the water. Uh, you want to get as much good material, as many good songs together, and then you want to get them recorded because until you actually hear things back, you uh, have a tough time evaluating. With the best tracks down on tape, the evaluation process began. Producer Quincy Jones explains. Once I get those nine songs on their feet, I give a very honest moment with myself and say, okay, in the nine songs, relatively, what are the four weakest? And um, at that point, we kind of stepped back from it for a minute and had a listen to everything and realized that three or four of the cuts, not that they were bad, but were just not fitting in with the way the album appeared to be going. Producer Quincy Jones believed that if they wanted to achieve their goal of making people passionate about buying records again, and if they wanted to be able to put any track that they chose out as a single, the album should cover multiple musical genres. I think for a record to penetrate, you have to go for the throat in four, five, or six different areas. You know, when you, you do a rock and roll kind of a trip, you know, you do your AC thing, you know, uh, dance stuff. Uh, R&B, soul, whatever you want to call it. In incredible areas, you know. By this time, Jackson had brought the songs that he was initially working on at his Havenhurst home studio into the Westlake sessions. Songwriter Glenn Ballard, who had only recorded the demo of Nightline with him a week earlier, remembers the day that Jackson brought his own demo for Billie Jean into the studio. He came in with a new song. Michael came in with a yeah. new song. And... Started off with a bass line. It was a song called Billie Jean. So Billie Jean knocked Nightline off the record. Boop. Right from the beginning, everybody knew Billie Jean was going to be a cornerstone of the, of the album. And the style of that and starting something, plus what was to become a thriller, we're kind of giving the whole thing an edge and a direction that some of the other tracks didn't have. Some of those tracks included She's Trouble and Got the Hots. Songwriter Rod Temperton explains why. They seemed a little too poppy and too straightforward for where we appeared to be going. So um, that's why those tracks never made the album. Another track which was rejected was Hot Street, written by Temperton. Despite the fact that Jackson loved the track, Jones and Temperton didn't feel that it was strong enough. And, much to Jackson's disappointment, it was left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I like Hot Street. I love that one. Quincy and Rod didn't think it was good enough, but I thought it was wonderful. But they were hard to give up, you know. It was not like they were bad songs at all, you know. But at one point, you've got to make a decision and choose a group of songs and say, this is it. Because I think half the producer's job is assuring you got the right songs. Having eliminated a handful of the more poppy tracks, Jackson, Jones and Temperton set out about finding new songs to complete the album. And there was the discussion between Michael and Quincy and Rod about covering a lot of bases. And uh, Quincy was looking for a broad spectrum of songs, uh, melodically, emotionally, stylistically. And he was encouraging Michael, come on up with some more stuff, we, we need more good songs. Jones challenged Jackson to write a rock song for the album, something that Jackson had never done before. And he said, we need something that's got, you know, a, a more rock feel to it. 
that said at the time, I need a song like My Sharona. But I mean, I, we need to do like just a strong rock and roll thing now that has the power that everything else he writes. Jones also challenged Temperton to write a ballad for Jackson. Despite the fact that he mostly wrote up-tempo disco funk tracks, Temperton got to work. And this is what he came up with. The song was exactly what Quincy Jones was looking for, but there was one problem. Despite having recorded the vocal dozens of times, Jones wasn't satisfied with Jackson's performance during the grooves at the end of the song. He just has a a great quality um, for excellence, for perfection, and anybody who's worked with him notices this, the way he'll make you do a thing until it's perfect. He'll say, it's beautiful, we have a take. Then he'll say, but can you give us one more? Jackson recalls that late one night, towards the end of a recording session, Jones took him aside and explained exactly what he wanted him to do. He wanted him to beg. Jones explains. It's, it's an expression we use, you say, to beg, you know, which is really, it's a, it's a, kind of, a certain kind of a passion. It's a very, very sensual feel. Michael has an innate sensual feel inside, but I mean, but he doesn't think of it as that. And this one, what we were really saying, this is the one I think we should try for. I think this is the choice we should make. And I said, just please, one time try it. He said, oh, right, and he's so shy. You know, he doesn't even like to think about something like that. And so he said to close the curtain and uh, so the people in the booth couldn't see him and he'd take one shot at it. And he tore it up.
One night, during the thriller sessions, Quincy Jones' wife came home with a pair of new lingerie. On the lingerie were the words, Pretty Young Thing. Jones, who was still searching for new songs to replace the ones they had recently eliminated, thought that Pretty Young Thing would make a great song title. And so, Jones asked Jackson, Rod Temperton, and a number of other songwriters to work on an idea around the title. James Ingram was one of those songwriters. Because see, Quincy would always do like Bear Gordy. He'd have a lot of writers writing for the same song. He just gave us the idea. Jackson explains that one of his creative idols, Walt Disney, often used the same creative process to get the best out of his animators. But I love working like that because I used to read about how Walt Disney used to, if they were working on Bambi or any animated show, they'd put a deer in the middle of the floor and make the animators kind of compete for different styles of drawing the deer. So whoever had the most stylized effect that Walt liked, and he would pick that, and they would kind of compete. It was like a friendly thing, but it was competition because it breeds higher effort. While singer-songwriter James Ingram was busy working on his idea, Jackson and musician Greg Fillingaines hit the studio to create a demo of their own. Let's take a listen. Ingram recalls that the day he presented his demo to Quincy Jones, Greg Fillingaines was also there, presenting the version that he and Jackson had co-written together. Greg Fillingaines had his meeting with his PYT right before me. And when I came there, you know, at 7 o'clock, he was still there. Unfortunately for Fillingaines and Jackson, their version was not what Quincy Jones was looking for. Quincy wanted a fast song. Mine was mid-tempo. See, this one thing I love about Quincy, it either hits him or it doesn't. It ain't no in-between or nothing. It was then Ingram's turn to present his demo. So this is what I had. He put the tape on. The dun, 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 dun. Where did you come from, baby? Who wants to take me there? I want to love you for the young thing. Quincy stopped the tape, he said, we're cutting this tomorrow. Just like that. Then he sent me to finish the lyrics. Ingram took his demo home and got to work crafting lyrics to fit the vocal melody he'd already written. When he thought he had it, Ingram called Jones to get his approval. So I was calling Quincy while he's still in the studio. I said, Quincy, well, I, I sing it to him. Where did you come from, baby? Ooh, won't you take me there? What a way, won't you, baby? Dynamite is in TNT, spark my nature. Should... No, the dynamite, that's too old. Jones stopped him. He wasn't sold on the lyrics, dynamite as in TNT, and so Ingram went back to the drawing board, but quickly called back with another idea. Called him back in the lyric. Tenderona, you got to be... That's it! Jones loved it, and so did Jackson, remarking that terms like tenderoni and sugarfly felt like rock and roll code words that you couldn't find in the dictionary. On his previous album, Off the Wall, Jackson performed a spoken intro on the song Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, which he loved. With this in mind, when Jackson hit the studio to record the vocals for PYT, a spoken intro was added. You know you, you make me feel so good inside. I always wanted a girl just like you. You're such a PYT. 
Well, the thing was, when we went, went in the studio, this is my first time seeing Michael sing, right? And so I've never seen anybody do this. Ingram recalls how when Jackson recorded the vocals for PYT, he was dancing as if he were on stage, exerting unbelievable levels of energy while moving his hips, shuffling his feet, and executing precise spins. I said, oh my God. Everybody I know, we be holding our breath trying to get everything on that microphone. <laughs> and so Michael came out sweating that thing. He said, am I singing it right? I said, Michael, you, you killed it singing it however you want to sing it. <laughs> so he danced and singing in the studio. I've never seen nobody in my life, and I've been into a lot of sessions, right? I've never seen nobody. Everybody's trying to hold their breath for the mic. Michael don't care. As the song was coming together, producer Quincy Jones had an idea. Jones wanted to extend the track to include a chant. And then he said, well, let's lengthen this part so we can put a chant. That nah, 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 right? right, right. That was Quincy, you know what I'm saying? Jackson brought in his sisters, Latoya and Janet, to record the background vocals on the chant section. And that's how we wrote the song. One of the earliest demos that Jackson worked on for the Thriller project was a song called Behind the Mask. Producer Quincy Jones discovered the song during a trip to Japan. When he heard it, Jones thought that Jackson might like to record a version of his own. Behind the Mask was composed by Ryuchi Sakamoto and was first used in a Seiko commercial in 1978. A year later, in collaboration with lyricist Chris Mosdell, the song was recorded by Sakamoto's band, Yellow Magic Orchestra, for their Solid State Survivor album. Then, when Jackson got his hands on the track, he created a whole new song, with a new melody line, new lyrics, and a new arrangement.
The version you're hearing now is not Jackson's final version, but an approximation of what it might have sounded like by laying Jackson's original vocal over an instrumental version of the track. Behind the Mask was one of two songs that remained strong contenders until quite late into the Thriller sessions, but which were ultimately not included on the album. Despite being favoured by Jackson and producer Quincy Jones, Behind the Mask was eliminated when Yellow Magic Orchestra's management team became unsatisfied with Jackson's proposed deal for the royalties and publishing of the song. The other song which narrowly missed out on selection for Thriller, but which producer Quincy Jones adored, was Carousel. Carousel was a great song that Mike Sabello wrote. She's from a world of popcorn and candy. Pony rides for a dime. Little children laughing. I'm from a world of disappointments and confusions. I want her to be mine. I started Talking, she kept on walking. She disappeared into crowd. Despite Quincy's belief that it was a great song, Carousel's fate as a thriller outtake was sealed when another song with a similar feel was discovered and blew everyone away. Carousel writer Mike Sambello discusses how Jones and his team were such professionals that they knew deep down which songs would work best for Jackson. They know what to go for. They're so knowledgeable that they're, they're beyond all the hectic guesswork and everything. I lost my heart on the carousel. I drew a circus girl who loved my heart in Lost my heart on the carousel. I drew a circus girl. The song that replaced Carousel was Human Nature. Quincy Jones explains that there wasn't enough room for both songs on Thriller. You know, there was only room on the album for one mood like Carousel or Human Nature. Human Nature was a choice we had to make, you know. The song's original writer, Steve Picaro, discusses how his five-year-old daughter became the inspiration for Human Nature. She had had a real rough day at school. She had fallen off the slide and a boy came up and hit her. And she was asked me why the boy came up and hit her. Trying to figure out how to explain to a five-year-old that, you know, he probably liked her in some way or just wanted to get her attention. And anyway, just the, just the title Human Nature, kind of the thought of Human Nature came, trying to explain Human Nature to a kid, you know, when she says why. And um, I went out to the studio where the piano was and one sitting. I had been working on the Thriller album already. I'm doing synthesizer work on the album. So I'd already been, was in the studio working with Michael and Quincy. He'd been asking David Page 
the other keyboard player in Toto for songs. David was known as a great songwriter, and he'd been asking him for a, a certain kind of song he was looking for on the album, and he would send an assistant over every day to pick up whatever grooves David was working on. And uh, I had just written Human Nature and just finished the demo, and I had, I had made a cassette just a stereo mix of the cassette. David called down to me one day, I was living at his house at the time, and he said, Quincy's assistant's coming over to pick up those two grooves I was working on last night. Make a cassette for me, would you? And I said, sure. And I went down, and sure enough, we were completely out of cassettes. So I took that cassette that I just made of my song, Human Nature, and I changed the labels. I fast-forwarded it, and I recorded David's stuff on the A-side so that it was the first thing you would hear when you put in the cassette. My song was on the other side of the tape, and I never thought Quincy would ever hear it, you know? So um, the story goes, according to Quincy, that he listened to David's two things, and he just happened to let the cassette keep going, and he was doing other things in his office. And in the old days, they used to have this thing called auto-reverse, so when the cassette got to the end, it would start playing the other side, and that's when he heard Human Nature. And we left the tape on and forgot to take it off. The tape they sent with the first two songs, which was okay, but we're not, we're not impressed, you know. And all of a sudden, at the end, there was all this silence, and I said, why, why, da 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 That was all, it was just a dummy lyric and just a very skeletal thing. And I said, what the hell is that, you know? This is where we want to go, because it's got such a wonderful flavor. So I called up David, and he said, yes, Steve Picaro wrote that. That's a little demo he had on, his, on the end of our tape, you know? And I called John Bettis to write a lyric to it. Songwriter John Bettis recalls hearing Steve Picaro's demo for the first time, and tells the story of how quickly the lyric and the song came together. And so they sent me over the cassette, and I listened to it. And I went, I like that. And so I finished it by 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. And then we took it to the studio, and they cut it literally that night. And the next day it was done. It was that quick. It was 48 hours. Guitarist Steve Lukather, who had played on The Girl Is Mine a few months earlier, was invited back to the studio for the Human Nature session. Lukather recalls how Quincy Jones pleaded with him to make the guitar part funky because he wanted a crossover track that would appeal to both pop and R&B radio. And so I came up with the initial part. I worked through a couple of these. He goes, that's great, that's good. And if you notice, the guitar sounds rather interesting on that.
And it worked, and, and it was great. And I was really actually proud of the part because it was very musical. The song's original writer, Steve Picaro, recalls the reason his fellow band members weren't interested in recording Human Nature as a Toto track. They kind of passed on it because they wanted to do more like stadium rock kind of stuff. You know, the band wanted to do bigger rock and roll. Stadium rock was the words they used, why they didn't want to do Human Nature. The irony was that following its release, Jackson performed Human Nature live in front of packed stadiums in 248 consecutive shows between 1984 and 1996. It was was beautiful, it was just so poetic, where like every town we'd be watching the local news and on would come Human Nature being played in a stadium, you know? With The Lady In My Life, PYT, and Human Nature joining Wannabe Startin' Something, The Girl Is Mine, Billie Jean, Baby Be Mine, and the title track, the Thriller album was really taking shape. But despite having gone through 800 songs to settle on the ones that they had already recorded, producer Quincy Jones felt that something was still missing. Throughout the production of Thriller, Jones had continued encouraging Jackson to write a rock song, something in the style of My Sharona, by The Knack but Jackson hadn't presented anything. Jackson had in fact come up with an idea, but felt too shy to play it for Jones. However, with the album deadline imminently close and pressure starting to come from the record label, Jackson finally revealed it. Jones recalls. And he says, uh, I got something here, but I don't have any voices on it. Jackson tells the story of how Jones asked him to record his idea so he could listen and decide if it was the missing piece of the thriller puzzle. He forced me to drive all the way to my house. He forced me to get the engineer and to do the song. And I made him wait in the other room. So we sat out at his, outside of his studio in Havenhurst and he wouldn't put it on. I was in there singing my heart out. So finally, I was done. He came in and I played it. And he just loved it. He hugged me and said, this is the song we're looking for. He was beat it. Let's take a listen to the original 1982 home demo recorded by Jackson for Quincy Jones. Okay, this is the harmonies. And the vocal harmonies on the choruses of Beat It. One, two, three, four. Be the be 
After recording the vocal version, Jackson completed a proper demo, which Quincy Jones then took to Westlake to recreate. Engineer Matt Forger recalls. Quincy was always very keen on making sure that the feeling of the song that went on the record had all of that emotional quality, all of that energy that the demo had, because that's the thing that you fell in love with at the beginning. So that's that same thing that you want when you hear the record. Jones used Toto's drummer, Jeff Picaro and guitarist, Steve Lukather, to recreate the demo. Picaro went first, nailing the drums in just two takes. It was then up to Lukather to lay down the guitar riff. And we quadrupled and made it big, and I said, bring me down a bass, and I'll play the bass on This is just the riff tune. And so I did all that. We sent it to Quincy. He goes, I love it, except the guitars are too heavy. I got to get this on R&B radio, pop radio, and rock radio. Jones asked him to redo the guitars, but with only two layers this time, not four. So I did that, and then Quincy goes, come on down with Michael, we're gonna do some, he wants to add a couple of these other riffs. After Lukather wrapped his session, further additions were made, including the unmistakable synthesized gong sound used as the intro of the track, played by Tom Baylor. Engineer Bruce Swedean recalls that members of the production team didn't want to use the sound because it had come directly from the synclavia, which meant that it wasn't original or unique. But Jackson loved it, and so the sound stayed. majority of the track complete, the only thing left to record was the guitar solo. There was no guitar solo on the demo, and one day Quincy said, yeah, we got to figure out who's going to put a solo on this thing, because this has got to be a rock anthem. And I decided to call Eddie, Eddie Van Halen to come play the solo on Beat It. And I called and said, Quincy Jones. I was out in the back in the studio, and I picked up the phone, and I basically hung up on the guys. Wow! Cussed me out every time, so I did it about three times, and then I think I called somebody else to tell him that I'm serious, you know. And I called back finally, and he was very sweet and everything else, so we've connected. Jones gave Van Halen creative freedom to play the guitar solo exactly how he felt it should be played. So I'm not going to sit here trying to tell you what to play. That the reason you're here is because what you do play. So let's try three or four takes. Some of it will be over animated, some of it will be long lines and so forth. We'll sculpt it. And if we did, we played his ass off. 
Songwriter Rod Temperton recalls that during a playback session for Beat It, the speakers burst into flames, with studio technicians needing a fire extinguisher to control the blaze. This story has become a bit legend in the studio, but it did happen. Jackson was thrilled with Van Halen's guitar solo, and producer Quincy Jones now had what he wanted for the album, a bona fide rock anthem. With the recording of Beat It complete, and the deadline staring them right in the face, Jackson and his production team worked around the clock to prepare the Thriller album for the mastering process. Producer Quincy Jones recalls that they were working in three studios simultaneously at Westlake Audio, doing overdubs, edits, and final mixes. The team worked all through the night on the eve of the deadline, with recording engineer Bruce Swedean finally taking the tapes to mastering engineer Bernie Grundman the following morning. Totally exhausted, Jones took Jackson home, putting him on the couch with a blanket and asking him to take a short nap. The pair would return to Westlake only a few hours later for the official album listening session. Jackson and Jones were joined for the listening session by Jackson's managers, Freddie DeMann and Ron Wisner, and the Thriller production team, including Rod Temperton and Bruce Swedean. Jones recalls that the head of black music at Epic Records, Larkin Arnold, who was also in attendance, was popping bottles of champagne before they even hit play, celebrating the fact that the album was finally done. Arnold had heard rough mixes of a number of the tracks prior to the official playback of Bernie Grundman's test pressing, and was expecting the finished product to sound just as good. And it didn't sound anything like some of the songs that I'd heard before when they had done the rough mixes. Jackson recalls that Epic Records had put him and his production team under tremendous pressure to complete the album by the deadline. Because of this, they were forced to rush certain elements, cut corners, and ultimately didn't pay enough attention to the overall length of the album. Thriller was an album of the vinyl era, which came with technological limitations as far as how much material could fit onto the record without the sonic quality being compromised. As a result of being too long, when the test pressing came back from Bernie Grundman, the grooves were too thin and the sound was all crunched together. The first mix, um, it's just absolutely horrible. I mean, it, it lost a lot of the brightness, the clarity, the uh, rhythm, you know, it was just uh, not there. Put simply, it sounded awful. Jackson was heartbroken. Engineer Bruce Wittian whose job it was to deliver an album with a sonic quality better than anything else on the market, recalls how when the playback ended, Jackson was so upset that he ran out of the studio in tears. He was sobbing. He was just crying and unhappy as could be because we hadn't achieved that sonic statement that we had all wanted to make. Thriller songwriter Rod Temperton recalls how the rest of the team followed Swedean and Jackson into the other room, to discuss their options. And we all went across the hall into the other studio and uh, nodded at each other and agreed that it all sounded awful. The tension in the room was high. It was a make or break moment. Jackson and his production team had created a masterpiece, but you couldn't hear it on the playback. Quite simply, the album needed to be shorter. And so, Jackson took a stand, insisting that Thriller could not be released 
like this. Producer Quincy Jones agreed. Head of Black Music at Epic Records, Larkin Arnold, recalls. So Quincy said, no, I can't give you this record, Larkin. We got to do this all over again. I got to remix all of these songs all over again. And I'm saying, oh, my God. I said, the single's out. But he said, don't worry about it. I'll I get it remixed and, you know, I'll get it back over to you in 10 days or something like that. Despite some initial resistance and a few raised voices, Epic Records agreed. Jackson, producer Quincy Jones, and engineer Bruce Swedean had 10 days to fix the album and hand it over. Jones told the team to take two days off, get some rest, and come back to Westlake Audio to begin the process. By this time, The Girl Is Mine with Paul McCartney had already been out as a single for two weeks, so no changes would be made to that track. That left them with eight songs to remix in eight days. Producer Quincy Jones had always felt that the intro to Billie Jean was too long. Initially, Jackson won that battle, but during the remixing process, he lost the war. Jackson was forced to cut 90 seconds from Billie Jean, including 18 seconds from the intro, a portion of the guitar solo performed by David Williams from the bridge, and more than a minute from the end of the track. The Lady in My Life was also shortened by more than a minute. Engineer Bruce Swedean achieved this by removing an entire verse from the beginning of the song. Other edits include sacrificing instrumental sections from Wannabe Startin' Something and PYT, and only using two of the three rap verses written by Rod Temperton and recorded by Vincent Price for Thriller. After eight gruelling days of meticulously editing, overdubbing and remixing, Thriller was finally complete. But this time, it was really complete. Engineer Bruce Swedean had masterfully mixed the album down to a total of 42 minutes playing time, 20 minutes on side one and 22 minutes on side two. Jackson felt great about the final product and was excited for the album to hit stores. But before that could happen, the new mix needed to be mastered. And so, engineer Bruce Swedean took the edited tapes back to Bernie Grundman and a fresh new master was created. When Grundman heard the album, he knew he was mastering something special. Well, Thriller was one of those albums that you don't get very often. You put it on and you realize that you've got something that's going to really be successful. In fact, as you listen to the tunes, you realize that most of the tunes could be singles, that almost everything on the album could be a hit record. Producer Quincy Jones reaffirms that an album of hit records was Jackson's goal from the moment they began working on Thriller. That was the whole plan in the beginning, man. You go through 800 songs to get nine, Thriller was released on November 30, 1982. Of the nine songs on the album, seven were released as singles, and all seven became hits. Jackson had achieved his goal. And not only did Jackson achieve his goal of producing an album of hit singles, he also achieved his other goal, the one that everyone had laughed at him for way back at the start. By the beginning of 1984, barely a year after its release, Thriller had become the biggest selling album in music history, earning a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. The album has sold so many copies that accurate figures are almost impossible to ascertain. 
Regardless of the exact numbers, by virtue of Thriller becoming the biggest selling album of all time, producer Quincy Jones had most certainly achieved his goal of creating an album that brought people back to the record stores. Jones reflects on the process of making Thriller and the ultimate success of the album. Everything now starts with songs. We had killer, killer, killer songs that went everywhere. And I don't think it's an accident that it hit everybody from eight to 70, man, everywhere in the world. That's never happened before. I mean, you know, a, a young black kid to be the idol of so many millions of kids all over the world, it never happened really before. Not on that level, you know. I mean, something this big, you should be not only surprised, but gracious and feel blessed, you know, and get on your knees, you know, because nobody knows how to aim at anything like that. Anybody that tells me they know how to make an album like this is a lie, you know, because if you can't plan it. The Genesis of Thriller was written, spoken, and produced by me, Damien Shields, author of the book, Michael Jackson, Songs and Stories from the Vault. Original artwork for The Genesis of Thriller was created by Lisa Patinaya, with additional work by Dan Villalobos. The Genesis of Thriller was inspired by Trevor Nelson's radio documentary, Thriller, Michael Jackson's Masterpiece, with additional inspiration from John Cameron's podcast series, JC's Musicology. All music used is owned by the respective original creators, with alternate mixes of Michael Jackson's music sourced from Single White Glove. Notable sources referred to for fact-checking and corroboration include Moonwalk by Michael Jackson, In the Studio with Michael Jackson by Bruce Swedean, Q, the autobiography of Quincy Jones by Quincy Jones, All the Songs, the story behind every track by Richard Lecoq and Francois Allard, Michael Jackson, The Maestro, Volumes 1 and 2 by Chris Cadman, Episode 76 of the MJ Cast by Jamin Bull and Q, featuring Andy Healy and Chris Lacey, and Making Michael, Inside the Career of Michael Jackson by Mike Smoltham. The Genesis of Thriller is lovingly dedicated to Michael Jackson.